Welcome back to the Air It Out podcast. I am Lucas Shu, your usual host of the podcast. With me today, back again for seems like the 300th time, is Paul Duncan. Paul, how are you doing today? Doing well. Uh, I think uh, we're getting to the point where I am now a frequent contributor, and uh, and if I keep coming back to this, uh, I might just have to be in the title. I might I might have to do uh, some future ad reads for you. Yeah, you might have to be. We have Paul on here last time to talk about uh, the draft, pre-draft, as it is before the draft actually happened. So now we're bringing it back on to talk about post-draft, and we're going to do a little ASC uh, draft review. Um, we're just going to start it off. One of the most interesting drafts, I think, this year will be the Miami Dolphins. Dolphins are obviously in a weird situation heading this year. They had Josh Rosen, who just left the... Cardinals, they had Fitzmagic, who is volatile as all can be. Um, they ended up taking Tua Tagovailoa, Paul talked about in the last podcast. They had a really interesting draft, to put it weirdly. Uh, Paul, what do you think of this draft? It's, uh, I looked through the, dra- uh, the picks that the Dolphins have done, and one pick I would be like, oh, this is a really good pick. Or there would be the next pick. I'd be like, what are you doing? And then they'll take have another pick where it's like, no, you don't take a run-stuffing defensive tackle in the second round. Yeah. And then they take a PFF favorite and analytics darling Curtis Weaver in the fifth. They took a long snapper. Uh, that's like the first long snapper selected since uh, Jake Cardona. I believe, and then before that was Ryan Pontbriand. So this is the like the third long snapper drafted since 2000, unless I'm forgetting somebody. Yeah. But the thing is that I find kind of interesting is there seems to be a theme. A lot of these guys are considered high upside. Now, usually in when we talk about high upside, the PFF, the analytics guys, don't tend to be a fan of that word. Uh, analytics is mostly based off looking at production and follows the line of thinking that if you're going to be productive in college, you're going to be productive in the NFL. While the Dolphins took a lot of guys like Austin Jackson, Noah Igbinagin, Igbione, <laughs> I think, something yep. like that. Exactly, who were not the most productive players their, um, their last season of college, but have elite traits that if they uh, can develop, can be very good players by year two and year three. So this front office must have a lot of faith in their coaching staff to turn these raw products into something good down the line. It also shows me that they're not still not interested in competing next year. Brian Flores proved to be a very good coach and worth putting this team in position to win games they had no business winning. But the fact that not too many of these players strike me as immediate impact starters tells me that they are really, really going and aiming for the long run. Yeah, I mean, this is a weird draft me as I was sitting there watching and like two attack of Iloa kind of saw that one coming I mean who didn't really to be Tua or Justin Herbert it's probably gonna be a QB um then they took Austin Jackson and I'm like not a huge fan of his he's I mean all offensive tackles inherently are 
developmental guys, unless you're Penny Sewell, who is coming out next year. But all of them are, you're going to need to work with them. It's just how it goes in the NFL. Then you got Noah Agione, who's like just a physical, just jacked up cornerback who needs to work as well. Development guy, Robert Hunt, another physical freak of nature, just still needs a little work with his hands. Raquan Davis, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to say there. And they take Curtis Lee from the fifth, who I loved. It was just a really weird draft from, from my perspective for them. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about the coaching staff and the front office having faith in the coaching staff. I think a lot of reporters and a lot of writers and a lot of people in the sports media and sports news talk about this. It's Sam Moss. I've heard talk about this a lot during pre-draft uh, from PFF. He said, like we'll say how coaches, they see these developmental guys like your Rosh on Gary's of last year, Caleb on chase of last year, your whatever freak of freak of nature athlete who isn't quite developed skill wise, but is there athleticism wise they say oh just give me this guy i can develop him and he'll be fine he'll be a great player he has the athletic traits he has the tools he's just not skilled yet i can work with him i can get him there just give me that guy and i think it's what the dolphins did i think brian flores is probably talking to can't remember the gm of the dolphins right now but i'm sure he's saying pre-draft saying give me tua we like tua every the algorithm in the front office tua then he's like give me the developmental guys Give me these freak athletes. Give me these trait guys, these tool guys. I'll work with them. I'll develop them. It'll be good. And I think that's what the main aspect of the Dolphins draft was. And I don't know how it's going to work for them. I mean, if you're a Dolphin, you're hoping it works. But I think it's, could, this could be a draft where it's like a boom or bust kind of draft. I know we use that term with prospects a lot. Like your Makaya Beckton, people call him a boom or bust or whatever prospect you lose is a boom or bust. But I think this could be end up being that with who they have, with Robert Hunt being physical, freak of nature, Noah Ibione, Austin Jackson, Curtis Weaver, all these guys. It's going to be interesting to see what they try to do in the coming in the future. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, they have two first-round picks next year. So they're going to have a lot of young talent on cheap contracts. And that is what the uh, Browns tried to do, but they just blew their front front office up every year. So I'm going to be very curious to see if the Dolphins can kind of take that uh, analytical idea of um, when you're not good, accumulating as many draft picks as possible, having as many players on cheap contracts as possible, take that idea, which comes is very analytics-based, and add some, try it again, but you have a lot more traditional scouting and getting players that fit within the system and see if maybe uh, they, with more consistency in the front office and coaching staff, can actually make this idea work. Yeah, I mean, I do love the analytical approach of just get a bunch of picks and hope they hit. Because the draft is, we talked about this on the pre-draft uh, podcast with me and Paul, it's hard to project to the NFL because there's so many variables you don't know. There's so many things you can't tell. We talked with Justin Herbert. Uh, you just don't know certain things. So I love the analytical aspect of going, get a lot of picks. You're not going to be right a lot of the times because that's how the draft goes. More than, more than not, guys are bad rather than good. And so it's like just get a bunch of picks, and hopefully more often than not you get a hit. And it, it increases your odds, which I think is the best thing you can do in the draft. 
Absolutely. Next uh, draft that we considered to be an interesting draft was the uh, Baltimore Ravens. So, uh, at least in our uh, like football Twitter community, we saw uh, this draft getting either a lot of hate or a lot of love. And it all seems to stem around the Dolphins taking J.K. Dobbins in the second round and not really addressing the wide receiver position. So, if uh, I have seen uh, traditional old-school scouts, I can't remember who exactly. I'm not sure if it was Daniel Jeremiah. But we're giving the Baltimore Ravens an A+. They had, what, five, six picks in the first three rounds, and they took just seemingly traditional, traditional Ravens guys. Tough, fast, and... Maybe not the most productive, but not like ter- terrible, uh, terrible uh, projects. So Patrick Queen, uh, Ravens always need linebackers, and they're getting a very, uh, very fast, very rangy, somewhat productive, but still quite raw prospect. They get J.K. Dobbins, who while he may not do much year one, should take over for Mark Ingram. And while we have discussed, and it's been talked about a million times, oh, don't take running backs in the first two rounds. But if you're at the Ravens, and most of your positions that you have are pretty well stocked up, you're a good team, you run the ball a lot, you run the ball, uh, it actually makes sense to have another stable mate who can replace Mark Ingram, or be an impact-type running back when he's on uh, on the field. So while, yes, it is a little early, it doesn't seem, it doesn't fall into the, oh, this is just so completely and utterly ridiculous, like, say, maybe taking your um, Sony Michelle or a running Rashad Penny in the first round. Right, right. I, it's... It's interesting because me, Paul, Asi were part timers at PFF. We're heavily in the mix, then the forest between the trees with the analytics community. We see it all. We see all the articles. We see all the data. We we hear all the analytics talk, and because it's just where we are. And it's I see, like Paul said, a lot of old school, traditional draft uh, scouts, they'll be like, they love it, they love the Dobbins pick, they love the Matabuke pick, they love the Queen pick, and then you look at the Atlantis community, and they like the Queen pick because he's a cover, you can he's well, can do well coverage, but then they're not a fans of the Dobbins pick, obviously because he's a running back, and I mean, PFF will slaughter you for that, every, every Atlantis community will slaughter you, for, slaughter you for that, because it's a running back in the second round, and then the Matabuke is a defensive tackle, in the third round wasn't much hate, but then the linebacker, like Harrison, third round, Tyree Phillips, not terrible, but it's just like this two opposite spectrums of like didn't like it at all and loved it. And I think I I don't hate the Dobbins pick. I'm not I'm not, I don't love it. I mean I'm more analytically analytically inclined than I am traditionally inclined. So I'm not a fan of the Dobbins pick because how early they took him. If it was like a third round, fourth round pick, I'd be happy with it. Do I think he'd be available there? Probably not. So I'm not, I don't hate it. Don't love it though. It's, it's a very interesting draft because also we, the, talking about analytics wise, like 
the Ravens were analytical darlings last year. Analytics exactly. always hammer home, go for it on fourth down, go for it on fourth down, go for it on fourth down. Don't take the field goal, go for it on two conversions, take, don't take the extra point. I mean, and you saw PFF love this. You saw everybody love this. Some people at the athletic, people at 538.com, everybody you look to at analytics is like, the Ravens are doing it right. The Ravens are great. John Harbaugh, coach of the year. I saw George Kashuri, uh, PFF data analyst, data scientist, say, he loved uh, John Harbaugh for Coach of the Year because like, of what he's doing with the fourth downs, with the two-point conversions, with all the analytical-driven stuff. And then you look at this, and they draft J.K. Dobbins in the second round, and the analytical guys are like, what just happened? Those were our guys. Those are our Ravens. And then it yeah. goes to do this. Same with the Chiefs. Another big analytic yes. thing is pass the ball, pass the ball. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl because they pass the ball. And then they uh, they take a running back in the first round. <laughs> and it's just, it's like the two big, wow, these guys are actually doing um, doing the stuff that we're saying. Wow, we're, ha- um, we're actually making some type of influence in the actual real football world. And then the Chiefs and the Ravens, they just, they break all the Ben uh, Ben Baldwin's or uh, the the George Shahuris and Eric Eager, they just take their hearts and they just squish on them. It's it was it was pretty interesting seeing all the analytics guys, PFF Mu, I I, don't, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Timo, um, and seeing just go, what just happened? Our buddy Sam Hayes, who works with the PFF, is a huge huge Chiefs fan. He saw when, he, when uh, they took Clyde Edwards Hilaire in the first round, who we were talking about as uh, so the running back that the Chiefs took, he he was devastated. He mm-hmm. was not happy. But she, he wrote an article uh, for Sports Illustrated uh, talking about why running backs weren't good. You should take on the first round. And the pick came out for the Chiefs and took Clyde Edwards Hilaire. He was devastated. It was it was interesting and, and pretty. I, I, I'm an analytics guy. I'm heavily analytically inclined, but I thought it was kind of funny, to be honest. Yeah. There, there, there just does seem to be some kind of like meme style enjoyment in, in this battle. Right. Uh, people get so heavily invested in it. I, as I've, as I've grown older and I'm still only 24 and I, but I've been reading about sports analytics since I was 14, and it's like I started so far on like reading Bill James, reading Chase Stewart, reading Aaron Schatz, reading the OGs of analytics for both baseball and football. And then as I've grown older, I'd like if you were to tell me back then that I would be more of a watch the tape kind of guy, and that this analytic stuff would go too far in some cases. Like, there was a guy who loves PFF, loves all the analytics, who essentially just thinks that NFL teams should play five wide every down and pass the ball every down. And I'm like, no, you've taken these good ideas and you've taken them too far. Right. It's, I think there can be, in every situation in football, from like your film watchers to who are just like, analytics does not matter. It doesn't matter what it is. And then there's people who take analytics to the extreme aspects. I think you need to find a certain balance with it. Because, I mean, analytics can tell you a lot of things. It can tell you how to draft, who to draft, what, what kind of what you should be looking for, and how to build a team. But then you need to watch the film as well and say, oh, look at these traits this guy has, what he actually can do on the field. You need to find 
like some even point, some common ground between analytics and the data and watching football and the film aspect of it. When you find that, I think is when you build your really good teams. You get your Patriot teams who are you build Bill Belichick, who's just a film grinder, but then you got a nice front office who understands how to build teams and how to do all these aspects involved in team building. And I think that's where common ground and how you can build a good team. Speaking mm-hmm. of being not the most analytic inclined team, but a team who has bought into analytics a little bit, I bring in uh, the guy from the Oakland Athletics, I believe it was, talking about the Cleveland Browns. Oh, um, I am a Browns fan, and I mean, for the past couple of years, I feel that everybody has been loving our drafts. Uh, like last year, we were able to get Greedy Williams in the second round. Everybody was like, whoa, that is such a good pick. And then two years ago, when we got um, Baker Mayfield and Denzel Ward, PFF was like, whoa, these are such good picks. <laughs> so I'm like used to people saying that the Browns have a good draft. But gosh, did the Browns have another really good draft. Yeah. Our main, our main weakness, our biggest need was Jedrick Wills, or was offensive tackle, and we filled that spot by taking my offensive tackle two or offensive tackle one B in Jedrick Wills. The guy has great feet. The guy can pass protect. He can move people in the run. Some people are a little concerned that um, he might have trouble going from the right side of the line to the left side, but I would rather have a younger player who's Mechanics aren't completely muscle memory just yet. Make the jump from the right tackle to left tackle. Then to take Jack Conklin, our current right tackle, who's been in the league uh, five years, and making him uh, switch his feet around and play left tackle. So I'm confident that Jedrick Wills will have the ability to flip sides. And the Browns offensive line, I think, has now gone from a huge weak spot to having the potential to be a top five offensive line in the entire NFL. Yeah. I mean, that was a that was a good pick. I mean, I get Wills is the right tackle and it's gonna be hard to flip a guy, but I think your best bet is to do it with a young guy who can still kinda of mold, you can still kinda of manipulate his body, you can still kinda of work with him. Cause he, he his Habits aren't ingrained in him yet. He can still kind of flip his habits, flip his technique. You can still kind of work with the clay, so to speak. You can still kind of change it. I really like that pick. I mean, you got Jack Conklin in the offseason. You add Jedrick Will to protect uh, Baker. And he's a really, really good pick. In the next round, you go and get another uh, great pick, Grant Delpit. What do you think of that one, huh, Paul? Uh, so first, the Browns did a nice little sneaky move here where they had the 41st pick, and they traded down three picks and added a fifth rounder. Uh, so this is also even more impressive to me because teams were not trading down this draft. Uh, with it being virtual and how the teams were interacting, trading just was not as easy as it was in prior drafts. They just had so much other stuff to deal with and getting set up for the draft just from an IT perspective and a technical perspective that a lot of the discussions of, hey, if this person's there at this pick, would you be willing to give this guy and this guy for this pick? It seems like those uh, conversations did not happen as much. But the Browns were able to twice 
uh, be able to move down and still grab their guy. They did it from 41 to 44, grabbing an extra 50, um, a fifth round pick and still getting Grant Delpit. And then they traded down from the, uh, I think they traded down about 10 to 15 spots and grabbed a third rounder next year and still picked up Jordan Elliott. So not only were the Browns getting their guys, they were doing what we were saying and they were getting more darts for both this year and next year to hopefully have some success. Right. I mean, I love, it was a very smart draft for the Browns and they were also able to get guys who could contribute now and in the future. I mean, they traded down into the fifth round and they got Nick Harris with that fifth round pick, which I think was a really nice pick. He's the entry off the lineman, so obviously they don't bring as much analytical uh, value or data value to it, but Nick Harris, I think, is a solid, a good center who's one of the best interior offensive linemen in the draft. One of my uh, guys who I was kind of high on. And to get him in the fifth round, I think it was a nice value pick. And then you got Jordan Elliott, who's a nice defensive tackle, who a PFF loved, PFF darling. And you got Jacob Phillips, who's a nice kind of linebacker who needs a little development, needs a little seasoning, if you will, but who could be a nice player for them in their linebacking group. I think this is a really, really solid draft from the Browns. You got Harrison Bryant. What? Who's their uh, coach? Kevin Stefanski? Yes. Kevin Stefanski loves what they used a lot of multiple tight end sets in uh, Minnesota. And it was a really good draft for the Browns. Yes, I, I, they, they were both, they were able to seemingly do the impossible of getting the best player available that also fits an immediate need and while trading down and getting more picks. That is like the holy grail of drafts. This, I would totally understand giving this draft an A+. Uh, Jacob Phillips might have been a little bit of a reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, athletic, very athletic, very raw linebacker. But boy, they went after their needs. They got players that fit their schemes. And then they took some athletic freaks, like Jacob Phillips, athletic freak, very raw, and Donovan Peoples-Jones, athletic freak, very, very raw. So they've got just kind of like... The perfect combination of getting guys to contribute right away, getting guys that are developmental players, getting guys that will fit the scheme and be able to do things that Kevin Stefanski wants. It's very difficult to uh, find a better draft. The only one for me that comes even close is the Arizona Cardinals, and that's just if you include the fact that they stole DeAndre Hopkins from the Texans. Like that, that's that's almost like cheating. <laughs> Right, that wasn't even that shouldn't have even happened. I, I don't know what Bill O'Brien was thinking. I don't know if he had like I don't know if Bill O'Brien's age is getting up and up and on him and he's like had an aneurysm, if he had like a brain lapse, I don't know what that was. And then he goes out and gets another receiver and pay and who basically makes more than Hopkins and when they if the Texans did end up paying Hopkins, they'd probably pay him slightly more. And it wouldn't if, if I'd rather pay Hopkins Three million more compared to uh, Brandon Cooks, who makes a couple million less. I would pay Hopkins 100 percent of the time, but I digress. Yeah, uh, I was having a conversation with uh, the same guy who's like super analytical, and I was essentially saying to him that the guys who run football teams are not dumb. They want to win. They're not like old geezers stuck in their stuck in their way who are going to be accept who aren't going to change to stop themselves from losing. No, these people want to win. These guys look through every single nook and cranny. And 
these players, these people are smart and know what they're doing. And all he really needed to do was come back with, what about Bill O'Brien? And I would be like, oh, yeah, him. He's like I, the one guy who I think it might be sabotaging his team. So, I really don't know Bill O'Brien. I mean, I, we, I digress. Let's uh, yes. keep on the draft aspect of things. Uh, next up is one of my personal favorite drafts of the 2020 draft is the Denver Broncos. I absolutely loved this draft. The Denver Broncos, it, it couldn't have worked out better for them to me. I mean, first pick, you got Jerry Judy. I mean, the Broncos probably biggest need besides cornerback was the biggest need. I'd probably say wide receiver is the biggest need. They needed somebody out there next to Cortland Sutton who had a really nice year. They need just get him a body who's actually competent. And you got my wide receiver number one, Jerry Judy, who is probably we're we're in a time of coronavirus where everybody needs to stay separated. And I think Jerry Judy is probably the best separator when it comes to NFL talent and future NFL talent. And you get KJ Hamler, really nice player from the slot. Michael, I can't pronounce his name. He's a nice, he's that one. I think is a bit of a reach, but it fits the system. So I get it. I wouldn't have taken that high. Michael Ojemudie, I probably butchered that completely, but it's a nice, he's a nice zone kind of talent. It fits the system there in Denver. Uh, then you get Big Al Albert. Not even going to try pronouncing that. The tight end from Missouri. You got another one next to Noah Fant. He's basically just a track star. And then you get Natani Muti, who nobody is talking about Natani Muti enough. I am the biggest Natani Muti stand there is, maybe. He is... A physical freak of nature. He His biggest drawback by far is his injuries, which completely scare me, honestly. I get what teams didn't pick him in the first couple of rounds because he has a Liz Frank injury. He has a Achilles injury, which for a big offensive lineman is not good to say the least. But when he does play and is healthy, it's like, what do you do against this guy? He's like an NFL offensive lineman playing in college. He's just a massive human being who's incredibly strong. He's quick. He's got giant legs. I mean, you can't really do a lot against him, but his biggest problem is he can't stand the field. But yeah. besides that, I mean, the Broncos killed this draft. You gave Drew Locke extra weapons. You're going to find out, is Drew Locke the guy? Can he be an NFL quarterback by giving him these weapons? I think the Broncos did a really, really good job with this draft. Exactly. In regards to Moody, if you can uh, neutralize Ed Oliver as a freshman, yeah. Then you know the potential is is very high, and yeah, he slipped because of the injuries and teams being unable to like meet with him and give him their physicals. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of like the Maurice Hurst situation where everybody knew he was good but didn't really know if he he could play. Grant Hurst had a heart condition, but if if he checks out clean, you might have a day one starter at guard in the sixth round. That seems like a pretty good risk reward for me. Right. I mean, if if it was like a if it was like an early round day one second round pick, I wouldn't have been as high on it because I believe in Muti as a talent. I believe he can be a high end guard in the NFL, but his injuries just worry me so much. But when you take him in the sixth round, I think the value on that pick is incredible. Me and Paul, obviously, we talk about this a lot. We are analytics guys. We are we live in the analytics community. Maybe me, more so Paul. Paul, I know he knows his analytics. I know he's an analytical guy. 
I don't know. That might be more analytic than me, but I think the one thing that a lot of people analytics talk to, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's value. And literally only analytics people talk to is about value, value, value. And when you take a guy like Muti, who is injury prone, don't get me wrong, he's got scary injuries that teams shouldn't probably worry about, but he has freak of nature athleticism, freak of nature skill. I think the value there is just incredible. Absolutely. Uh, Go ahead, Paul. uh, I was going to uh, move on to the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Jaguars, uh, when we went through the draft, like originally, I wasn't thinking Jacksonville was like a top five draft or anything that special. But looking back on it, they, I think they are a lot better team now than what they were prior to. They invested in three of the most um, important non-QB positions in grabbing a corner, grabbing an edge, and grabbing a wide receiver. So they really address the areas that matter, even if I don't really particularly like the players. C.J. Henderson, I feel, was a reach. Colvin Chasen was a bit of a reach. But both of those guys have like the upside that we were talking about um, with the Dolphins, that even if they struggle year one, year two, if with good coaching, they could, break, they could break out. I mean, Chasen and Josh Allen rushing from the edge, that has some scary, scary potential. Right. I mean, I loved this draft, the Jaguars. We talked about it kind of with the Dolphins, or at least how the Dolphins are drafted guys who are kind of developmental guys, kind of like you can need to work these guys a little bit. Paul said it how they're not expecting to compete next year, and they're not expecting to be like this great team, so they got these guys who they can kind of mold, they can work with, they can develop into these quality players. I think the Jaguars did it, but I think they did it better than the Dolphins did it. Dolphins, obviously, your first pick, you need to take your QB. If you believe that's your guy, go get him. And I think he's a good, I think two is a good player. But the Jaguars here, you got CJ Henderson, who showed lockdown quality skill. I saw, uh, I can't remember the name, Crocker. He, uh, said this is the cornerback number one because of what Henderson can be, which is lockdown, shut down corner. And you get Caleb on chase on, bit of a reach, but I get it. And then you get, uh, LaVisca in the second round, nice receiver added on the receiver group gives, uh, whoever the QB is going to be in Jacksonville, Gardner for now, whoever will be in the future is going to be, have a nice receiver in the Visco and create for the catch. Then you got Ben Barch who drank that incredible smoothie and who actually is actually a really quality player. And you got Josiah Scott, who I really like as a slot cornerback. He's got great body control, really good quickness. And is just a great player in my opinion. I mean, this is a great draft for the Jaguars, I think. They know they're not going to be competing next year. They expect not to be competing next year. So they went, we're going to get developmental guys. We're going to take a bunch of guys who are maybe not raw, per se, but who need developmental help. They need to be worked with. They need to be molded. And they need some time. And they went to get these guys and said, all right, we know we're not going to compete this coming year, but we can project to the future, and if – we believe Gardner is their guy, or they believe whoever down the road is their guy. They can go, we got guys developing for him already. We're going to get our team started up and get them developing before we go get a guy. So when he comes in, they're ready to go. He'll be ready to go, and he'll have an easier time transitioning to the NFL. I think it was an incredible, incredible draft by the Jaguars. I think they did a really, really good job. 
Absolutely. So, uh, who, what's the team that didn't do a good job? Uh, I personally think the Raiders. I mean, it was it was a, a weird draft per se for me. Like one of these picks I didn't get was like Henry Ruggs. I mean, Paul and Paul were talking for the podcast, and we called I called him, and we were saying I said to him anyways. I really didn't get this pick, Henry Ruggs. Is not because Henry Ruggs is a bad talent. He's my third receiver off the board behind third best receiver behind C.D. Lamb and Jerry Judy, and I would have taken the first round without a doubt. It was just I didn't get the scheme fit. I didn't get the quarterback fit because it's Derek Carr, and Paul was saying how no problem with Derek Carr's arm, but the problem is Derek Carr really just doesn't throw the ball deep, and that's what I didn't get either. It's like why did you? I really didn't get a fit. And you go, then the Raiders get go out and get uh, Damon Arnett, who I think is a quality player, a solid player, just not in day one. I really did not get this draft in the Raiders. Paul, what do you what do you got in this draft, buddy? Yeah, so Henry Ruggs makes even less sense when you consider the uh, other wide receiver on the other side is Tyrell Williams who is another speedster, big, uh, high yards per reception, low receptions type player. So it feels a little odd to have Henry Ruggs, who can be valuable even if he doesn't have, uh, even if you don't get the ball in his hands, maybe in a way similar to Will Fuller, where you just have him go deep a lot and open things up uh, underneath. But Tyrell Williams isn't really the type of receiver who you would want uh, running shallow crosses. That's more um, along the lines of what Ryan, uh, Brian Edwards or Hunter Renfro would do. So it's, it seems a little odd that they would take rugs, especially over guys like Jerry Judy or C.D. Lamb. I mean, Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs played on the same team, and Henry Ruggs was essentially the third wide receiver there. So you really have to ask for asking yourself some questions about why he wasn't involved more and why he wasn't more of a deep threat than he was. So I find it really puzzling what the Raiders were doing. In fact, like the whole what the Raiders have been doing the last two years has been very odd. It feels like when teams get loads of first-round draft picks that they feel that they can reach for players a lot more. I mean, last year the Raiders had three first-round draft picks and they barely took a single first-round quality player. Yeah. Like, they got Clellan Farrell, who was supposed to be a late first rounder, and then they get Jonathan Abrams, who was like a third round safety prospect and kind of like an old fashioned safety prospect to, to make that to make things even worse. And then a running back, granted a good one. So it's like you have five first round picks, the most valuable assets, and it doesn't even like look like you're getting any value because you're not drafting first round quality players. This is what makes uh, the Raiders unique is they have their style of guy. They want certain char- they want certain character traits more and certain skills more than anything. And they must think that they know something that us common draft folks don't know. And there could be some truth to that. I mean, these guys interview the players, these guys see the practices, but is what are the odds that they're right and everybody else is wrong? It takes I mean, a lot to do that. 
Right, right. It was it was a really I mean the one thing we established here that everybody figured out is the Raiders have they have their type. Uh not to go with Colin Cowherd and everybody, but Colin Cowherd always says everybody has a type talk about his divorce and all that and everything, but the Raiders clearly showed they have a type, and it's for a cornerback, at least on defense, is at least is physical guys, tough guys, old school guys. You got Dame Arnett, he's gonna jam his line of scrimmage, he's a physical dude. You got Meek Robertson, physical dude, gonna get a not a huge guy, not tall, but he's gonna fight you at the last scrimmage, he's gonna punch you in the face, he's gonna hit you hard. And then you got Tanner Mews, who's a safety, probably gonna be a linebacker. He's not very quick, <laughs> to put it nicely, but he's going to thump you, he's going to hit you hard, and he's going to make sure you feel it in the morning. But he's not going to, like, be great in coverage. He needs to make another Jonathan Abrams type where it's, like, old school, hulking dude, and just going to whack you and knock you to the ground. And I'm like, well, what are we doing here? It's 2020. The one pick I did like, to be fair to the Raiders, like, I like Len Bowden. I like him. I think he's a nice weapon piece. I think he's, like, a... He can make stuff happen for the catch. I think he did, he didn't get a lot of help at Kentucky because he's a receiver, and he ended up playing quarterback because everybody in Kentucky got hurt and pretty much died. So he's like, well, then we need to play quarterback, and they basically turned into an option running team. Yeah, what is a little odd, what is a little odd is that they did address positions that matter and positions that they that they need. It's just I think we we just think they've reached uh, for their guys. Right, One right, thing right. I would be really kind of interested to see, Derek Carr goes down or they play Marcus Mariota. Imagine putting Marcus Mariota and Lynn Bowden in the backfield together. That would be an interesting thing. You need a lot of uh, option plays there, a lot of creative out there. Absolutely, and Brian Edwards wasn't exactly a terrible pick, too, but I'm not sure. Uh, I think maybe his skills may overlap a little bit with the slot machine uh, Hunter Renfro. Yeah, it was it was a weird draft to say say the least. Another draft who we aren't we weren't as high on per se was the Tennessee Titans. The Titans, I really I just it wasn't that it was terrible because it wasn't terrible compared to some other draft, but it was just it was odd. Like I didn't get it. Like Isaiah Wilson, I mean I did get Isaiah Wilson pick not from that he was a good perspective, but from the I get this style perspective i get why they took him because isaiah wilson's kind of this big just giant guy per se to on his offensive line i mean i get what they're gonna do with him i mean they're they had derrick henry last year they saw what happened with him when they ran the ball which i mean it was more his uh run blockers than it was in him per se and isaiah wilson get up in you He's going to knock you back. He's going to be physical with you. I think the Titans fell in love with that. I mean, Paul, what do you, what do you make of this odd, interesting Titans draft? Like, I mean, they got Christian Bolton, which is nice. But it seems right, like right. their first three picks were, like, designed to replace a player already there. Like, Isaiah Wilson is going to, be, is going to come in and is going to be expected to replace Jack Conklin. Which is a kind of, which is a downgrade. Christian Fulton is going to come in, and I don't think he's going to play slot corner, but I think he's going to 
play outside and then move Adore Jackson inside. I think to they replace did the loss move... of Logan Will uh, Logan yep, Ryan. Yep. Just then Darrington Evans is going to come in to replace Dion Lewis. So it's like I don't really feel this team is getting better. They're just kind of treading water, and they just also didn't really have that many picks. So while it's not like a terrible draft per se, it's just one where it's like you don't really feel too strongly about it. Cole McDonald might be kind of fun. He'll be fun to watch in the preseason. He'll I get love. Like, Go ahead. He'll get like three touchdowns and three interceptions in the final preseason game. I love me some Cole McDonald. I had tweeted about this earlier. I said uh, I am ready for Cole McDonald to throw a uh, pass into triple coverage and then come out the next play and do the exact same thing. He is going to put his nuts on the table, for lack of better terms, and he is going to go balls to the wall. He is, has some stones on him. I love that Cole McDonald pick. I'm excited for that one. But I, I really didn't get this draft from the Times perspective. It felt like, like Paul said, like a replace guys will fill holes because we just lost uh, we lost play, players in free agency. So why not just go fill our needs, Raft guys and Phil needs, and here we go. Uh, one thing I also know is just kind of looking at his picks is it's kind of just like, besides the Christian, Christian Fulton pick, excuse me, it's like, it's just a brand thing like the Raiders did. It's physical, physical, physical. You got Darrington Evans, I mean, not physical, but running back, running style. Darrington Evans, who's going to be probably running back behind uh, Derrick Henry. Got Isaiah Wilson, who is just a physical guy who's good in the run blocking aspect, and you got Larry Murchison, who's kind of played edge in college, but he's trying to be like a defensive tackle because he wasn't a quality pass rusher. So it seems like they're just gonna keep sticking with that style of play they did to make it to the conference championship and lose uh, Kansas City, and it's gonna just be another year of power run game, play action, and stop the run and have good defense from Tennessee. Or just stop um, the pass. They they have damn good corners. They got they got some really really good corners. I like the way they've done in the defense. But uh, one other draft who we aren't as high on. Who I we kind me and Paul both went in on uh, this team and the head coach of this team is the Houston uh, Texans. I I mean Paul, I don't know how you feel about this draft, but they the Texans did not have a lot to work with to start off. And their only the only reason that they didn't have a lot to work with is because of the Texans. The Texans this is the Texans' fault for this. They had a second rounder, a third rounder, a fourth, a fourth, and a fifth. And they traded all of them away. Like they had their first rounder and they gone because of the tonsil trade with the Dolphins uh I believe before the season even started. They traded like a bunch of first rounders away. And they got rid of a second rounder with uh, Brandon Cook's trade. So they're down to five picks total in the draft. And what they did with them was not my favorite thing in the world. They had a huge defensive back problem, and they went and got Jonathan John Reed, who I think is a quality corner, but that's the only thing they did with it. And they got Isaiah Coulter in the late round. It, I, I'm i not a huge fan of this pick and this draft at all. Paul, what do you think about this? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, there's just no guys that on this list of draft players where you're like, oh, I'm excited to see this guy play. I mean, Blacklock can be a nice defensive tackle, but I'm not sure he's going to have the pass rushing chops to really change anything. 
Jonathan Greener showed some flashes of Florida, but Florida players have a nice little tendency to bust, and I don't really see him changing anything. Charlie Heck is a project north uh, project tackle, and John Reed is, from what you're saying, it could be a nice uh, fit in sub packages. It's just you're you're not do, you're not doing things, and this is why this is the risk of like trading draft picks for stars is not only when you uh, trade a player like say for Laramie Tunsil. The big caveat is is not only do you need to give up draft picks, which should normally be starters at a reasonable price, you then have to go pay a star player their market value. So would this team rather have that first round pick that they would have had, which would have been the what, twenty six pick? Twenty six pick? I believe in, so and draft somebody like Josh Jones or Isaiah Wilson and have them on a cheap deal, or would you rather have Laramie Tunsil and pay him ten times more? So that's kind of like the big issue when you make these giant trades is you have to pay the player and then you lose the surplus value on players that you get in the draft. Usually only quarterbacks have that type of ability to be worth that that difference in value when it comes to contracts. And the only player who I think has come close to being worth worth it is Khalil Mack. But a lot of that is because the Raiders just botched all the first round picks that they uh that they took. Right. So right. that's that's the that's the danger of uh taking of taking um doing trades like that, and uh, it's another reason why I like the San Francisco side more than the Colt side for De- um, regarding DeForest Buckner, is I think I would prefer to have Javon Kenlaw at 4 to $5 million than DeForest Buckner at, like, 13 to 15 Right, and that's an excellent point you bring up there. I mean, we never talked about this whole podcast, and it's an excellent point is with the Texans regarding the Texans, it's like, Josh Jones, you pay him a rookie salary, which is, I mean, not a lot relative to everybody else in the NFL. But instead, you pay Liam Tunnell, I believe, the biggest left tackle contract ever. And is he worth that? I don't think so. I don't think he's a top left tackle. I don't think he's the best left tackle in the NFL. I don't think he's a generational kind of guy. I think he's a solid, quality, good left tackle, but I don't think he's worth that much. I would have rather paid Josh Jones his money and directed him rather than him. And you bring up another good point with the Colts and the Niners. Javon Kinlaw, <coughs> excuse me, Javon Kinlaw, in the term of money, in terms of what you can do with their contracts, he's more valuable. Teams, I think, especially in the Texans' case of having a head coach be the general manager, per se, or take on the general manager duties of trading and signing and all this and drafting, it they look at it, in Texans' case at least, I believe they're looking at it, or Bill O'Brien's looking at it and saying, he's not looking ahead to the future, I think. I think he's mortgaging, mortgaging the present and taking on the future. He's like, I don't care about the future, mortgaging the future, excuse me. He's like, I don't care about the future, I want to win now, and I don't know. It's just... Ask the Rams how that's doing. Right, right. Look at the Rams. It's a great point. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, you can if the players are good enough 
and if you do all right and you supplement your uh, future picks with other trades, but he's not. He's basically going, all right, I'm going to take a learning console and get rid of my line of picks, and it'd be fine if he went back and traded somebody else away and got, like, a couple extra picks, but instead he went, all right, I'm going to get rid of more picks. And it's just, it's a weird, bad situation in Houston, to be honest. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. You got to do that Sean Watson. They're gonna, yeah, they got, they're gonna need to pay Deshaun Watson here soon. That's, uh, honestly, that's probably one of the, one of the few times that I could understand mortgaging your future would be, say, like a situation like the Browns, where they have Baker Mayfield, Nick Chubb, Miles Garrett, Denzel Ward, all on their rookie contract, and they only have, like, a two more, two year window where they can, where they can compete. I would not be surprised if the Browns do very well at the beginning of the season that they might be willing to trade another first round pick to try to improve the team immediately before they have to commit to Baker Mayfield and Miles Garrett long term and have to hold hold on to those big contracts. Right. That's the only time I, I really I think that strategy can work. Right. I get it. I get it from an NFL coach perspective because you get you only got so much time in this league and when you get a window it closes fast unless you have like your Mahomes of the world or prime Aaron Rodgers or these guys who are just your one, two or three QBs who can basically do a lot with basically nothing. And I get it, but when you, you have to be like an AFC conference championship level, I believed in order to mortgage your future. And I think the Texans aren't at that level. I think the guys they brought in aren't going to put them to that level of Super Bowl contention. And that's a problem with the Texans for me. Absolutely. Before we get out of here, talk about a little bit about our favorite picks personally. Uh, Paul, we talked about this before. Bryce Hall, I think, is a really nice pick. He fell down draft boards a lot because of the injury he had in the start of the season for the Virginia Cavaliers. But I think it's a, a nice, a really nice pick for the Jets. Paul, what do you think of this Bryce Hall pick at corner for the New York Jets? So we were talking earlier about value and risk and reward. So Bryce Hall last season was among the best corners in all of college football. Mm-hmm. That is his. Uh, that was that is his upside. And then this year, did he tear his ACL or Achilles? Do you remember? I uh, Yeah, I'll look it up quick. You, you talk while you're talking. So yeah, then Bryce Hall gets in, uh, injured this year and then misses the whole entire season. So you have a player with the potential to be a first, second round pick, an instant contributor with legit talent. And you get him in the same round that the that uh, other teams are taking guys like Justin Rohrwasser, the kicker. So yeah, yeah, one fifty eight was Bryce Hall, a corner who could play, and then one fifty nine was a kicker. So you take a look at that risk reward, what you're able to get, and you you see value. There's a surplus of value there, and maybe even additionally so, since because teams weren't really able to look at the medicals due to the, all the um, coronavirus crap. Mm-hmm. Probably wasn't able to get to teams and wasn't able to do these physicals and do the things that they want to see. So teams just look at him and be, are like, we just don't have the information here to make a decision. So he fell, and the Jets were able to pick him up. Right. I mean, it was a terrible situation for Bryce Hall. I think if he would have came out, uh, 
he probably would have been one of the best corners in the draft and one of the higher drafted corners in the draft. But I just found the injury and the cord this is from Kyle Trimble on cover1.net. Ooh, they do a nice job of uh, talking receiver and uh, cornerback talk. The injury said as a result, he suffered a fractured fibula and dislocated ankle and got uh, carted off and season ending surgery. On a special teams play, he was covering a punt. Yep, yep. Which, is, which, oh, that just, I mean, I'm glad he likes playing special teams, but oof. Man, it was. I can say, yikes. <laughs> You're not getting that old yet, Paul. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just, it's such a freak injury, and I'm, it was a, I'm watching it now, and his, it looked like he got, got rolled up on almost, and it fell right on his ankle. But, man, I feel bad for Bryce Hall, but I think, I feel bad for Bryce Hall, but I feel good for the Jets if you're a Jets fan. Because Bryce Hall is a really solid corner. He's a nice cover three corner. He can do a lot of things. He's got timing. He's got intelligence. I think he's a really solid pickup for the Jets, honestly. I think that was a, a nice pick. I mean, Carter, the Jets there. They also had a quality draft, too, I think. I mean, they got Mackay Becton, Ashton Davis, who I absolutely love, uh, Bryce Hall, Denzel Mims they got. I think that was I forgot about them having a nice draft as well. They had a quality draft. Yeah, they they uh went and improved on their uh giving Sam Darnold help with a tackle, a wide receiver who has DK Metcalf type potential. They got a versatile safety and athletic edge. They got a super smart backup uh, quarterback who can be the backup with uh, James Morgan. Yeah. So, they filled a lot of their needs. I mean, yeah, it's a quality, quality draft. I mean, they fix needs, but they fix needs at valuable positions like your receivers, your corners, your offensive tackles, and they did a really nice job. Before I get out here, I want to talk about my favorite pick, and mine's Geno Stone. I wrote an article for Fansided uh, right when the draft ended, listing my favorite picks from each round, and Geno Stone was my seventh-round pick, uh, seventh-round uh, player. It was taken by the Ravens, who we talked about. We didn't talk about much about Geno. But uh, he was the seventh round, 219th pick in the draft. He's a safety from Iowa. If you don't know a lot about him, not the most athletic guy in the world, which is probably why he fell down draft boards, because he's not this freak of nature athlete. Your Grant Delpit, your Ashton Davis, your Kyle Duggars, your Jeremy Chins. These freak of nature guys who are just big, they're quick, they're fast, they're rangy. He has range, don't get me wrong, but he's not like, he's not on the level of Grant Delpit, in my opinion, or these freak of nature guys. But what does separate him in my eye is his intelligence, his vision, and his own coverage skills. I mean, he is a quality, quality player. And it's like, I think what the, what the excuse me, Ravens did with getting him is, we talked about this a lot, me and Paul talked about this a lot, it was, it's value. Value, value, value. You get a guy who you don't know if he can be a quality player or not, or if he's going to be your outstanding player because of some deficiencies he has in his game, like uh, like he has. But getting him, you give yourself a shot at getting a quality guy because of the talent that he has. He has his own coverage skills that are incredible. He has eyes that are incredible. He has great processing speed, which is incredible. You give yourself a guy who could possibly be a quality player in the future. I think what they did was just, it's just an incredible move by the Ravens. Paul, you got anything on uh, Geno Stone at all? I know that uh, you said last on um, the last podcast that you love him. 
And, well, actually, you still love him. <laughs> of course you do. Paul, anything you want to talk about quick before we head out of here? Nope. Uh, what is it? Socials are still the same. I, I still run the PFF Eagles Twitter account. Where I post PFF articles and drop Eagle stats. And my personal is the foot Paul because I'm Paul and I like football. So it would make sense for me to be the foot Paul. So it's, yeah, puns. I enjoy them. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you for listening. Yeah, the PFF underscore Eagles on Twitter, PFF underscore E-A-G-L-E-S. And then Paul Duncan on Twitter at the foot Paul, T-H-E-F-O-O-T-P-A-U-L, no underscores, no dashes. Paul, thank you for coming on. Good times always. We will have to get you back on the podcast. Absolutely. All right. Have a good time. See you, Paul. Have a good day. Bye.